There are two conceptions of the church uh, that I find helpful that, that help us understand what the purpose of the church is all about. And those two conceptions are, one, that the church is first a hospital, um, and then two, that it is an army. And as a hospital, it's, it's a safe haven. It's a, it's a shelter uh, for those who have been buffeted by the storms of the world. It's a place where God's people should be able to come and find refuge, where they should be able to find nourishment for their souls, where they should feel renewed in their spirit. So that's the, the, the church is to be a safe haven, a hospital. But it's also not meant to stay inside. It's also meant to be an army. There's this outward thrust that the church is meant to have. And so for this reason, the importance of the church as a witness, or the, the importance of the church, this image of being a light, well, the, the whole idea of light is to point uh, the world to something, and, and that light of the church is to point people to uh, the kingdom of God, to point them to uh, Jesus uh, himself, the, the king of God's kingdom. And with that in mind, I, I want to just um, plant this seed in your, your minds that as we are starting to get into the warm weather, as we're starting to enter into a summer schedule, school is uh, coming to an end, and, and here at church, our schedules change. And um, my hope is, is that uh, you would be thinking about, you know, how do we as a church, as individuals, how are we a light um, to our neighbors and, and to those who are in our sphere of influence? How, how you know, and, and one of the things that we're recognizing is that the gap between the church and uh, the unchurched world around us is widening, okay? And, and the result of this is that it's, it's increasingly difficult for those who are unchurched just to simply drive up to a church and, and join the church for worship. And we recognize that a much easier access point um, to the church and to the gospel is our friendships, it's our homes, it's... And, and one of the things we want to encourage you to think about is how can you use your home, your, your place of living, as a center of ministry? How can you begin to think, you know, in the old days, um, churches thought in terms of having parishes, you know? And what I want you to think about is how can you begin to uh, see your street, to see your immediate connections, your relationships and friendships as your parish? And so during the summertime, I want to encourage you, and we'll have some people coming and and hopefully sharing even from the pulpit about just some ideas that they have used to just bless their neighbors. Again, we are blessed not just to be blessed, (laughs) but to be a blessing. Blessed to be a blessing. And and, and, And at the minimum, this begins with just praying for your neighbors, right? But then reaching out to them inviting them to the kitchen table for a coffee or your front porch or, you know, the backyard for a little, you know, hamburger barbecue or something. Um, be creative, but see your home. Now, this is like, you're like, well, what are the rules? No rules. <laughs> Just think about, you know, Lord, fill me with your spirit and show me how the church can be a light. Okay, so now shifting gears. In Romans 12, 19, the Apostle Paul writes, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, 
but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So this sermon from 2 Kings is about God repaying. It is about the vengeance of the Lord, in this case, as it is executed through the next king of Israel, King Jehu. Um, I invite you to stand, and, and I'm only going to read through verse 26. I'm not sure how many verses. Uh, we don't have it projected anyway, so <laughs> sorry. Hopefully, and, and the plan is, if I understand correctly, we should have our projector by next Sunday. Okay, we have to replace our projector. Okay, so we are in 2 Kings, and I am in chapter 9, verses 1 through 26. Then Elisha, the prophet, called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Tie up your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. And when you arrive, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and have him rise from among his fellows and lead him to an inner chamber. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord. I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee. Do not linger. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth uh, Gilead. And when he came, behold, the commanders of the army were in council. And he said, I have a word for you, O commander. And Jehu said, to which of us all? And he said to you, O commander. So he arose and went into the house And the young man poured the oil on his head, saying to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord over Israel, and you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish. And I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. And the dog shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. Then Jehu came out to the servants of the master, of his master, and they said to him, Is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And he said to them, you know the fellow and his talk. And they said, that is not true. Tell us now. And he said, thus and so he spoke to me saying, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Thus Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram, with all Israel, had been on guard at Ramoth-Gilead against Hazael, king of Syria. The king, the king, But King Joram had returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him when he fought with Hazael, king of Syria. So Jehu said, If this is your decision, then let no one slip out of the city to go and tell the news in Jezreel. Then Jehu mounted his chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram lay there, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to visit Joram. Now the watchman was standing on the tower in Jezreel and saw the company of Jehu as he came and said, I see a company. 
And Joram said, take a horseman and send to meet him, meet them and let him say, is it peace? So a man on horseback went to meet him and said, thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu said, what do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. And the watchman reported saying, the messenger reached them, but he is not coming back. Then he sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, thus the king has said, is it peace? And Jehu answered, what do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. And the watchman reported, he reached them, but he is not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshai, for he drives furiously. Joram said, make ready. And they made ready his chariot. Then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, set out, each in his own chariot, and went to meet Jehu, and met him at the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. And when Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? He answered, What peace can there be? So long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many. Then Joram reigned about and fled, saying to Ahaziah, Treachery, O Ahaziah. And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between the shoulders so that the arrow pierced his heart and he sank in his chariot. And Jehu said to Bidkar, his aide, take him and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. For remember when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab, his father, how the Lord made this pronouncement against him. As surely as I saw yesterday, the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now, therefore, take him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry for this heavenly food that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Amen. You may be seated. The vengeance of God. That's what we see here, even as it's being executed through King Jehu. And, and really, the story of uh, vengeance continues not just to the end of, of chapter 9, but through chapter 10 as well. So as we come to our text, the first section is taken up with the anointing of the next uh, king of Israel, that is, the anointing of Jehu. This opening scene is a little strange. Elisha commissions one of the sons of the prophets, that is, one of his students, to run with a flask of oil in order to anoint the next king of Israel. It's a crazy little scene. The student prophet locates the general, that is, Jehu was the commander. He is the general of Israel's army, and he declares that he has a message for the commander, for the general. He goes into the inner room, and he pours out the oil over Jehu's head and declares his message of kingship and of divinely ordained vengeance. And then, you know, it's kind of a crazy, he just tears out, you know, he tears off out the door, uh, not to be seen or heard of again. And this is where this whole thing gets a little more comical. It appears that Jehu isn't, 
he doesn't seem to know what to make of this right away. You can imagine Jehu, he, I mean, this oil would have been thick. It would have covered his hair, probably into his beard. It would have smelled. And you can imagine Jehu furiously trying to get this stuff out of his hair, out of his beard, before he goes out to his lieutenants. He goes out. They want to know, okay, so what was that all about? What, did, what, did this, what was the message? And Jehu's trying to play it off. You know how these guys, you know, these itinerants, these, you know, vagrants, they come in and they're, they're half mad. Um, and they're, they're not having anything of it because they can probably smell the oil that has been flowing on his head. They know that Jehu is not giving them the full story. And so Jehu finally um, describes and he tells them uh, what it is uh, that the messenger has said. And, and this is also interesting. His lieutenants it sounds like immediately they take off their outer garments and they create a path, you know, where he's standing and down the steps um, for him to walk, this royal path to signify his kingship. And, and what it immediately shows you too is that they're not too bent out of shape that Joram's reign appears to be coming to an end. It doesn't appear that King Joram was all that popular, apparently, among his soldiers, but in any case, they hail him, you know, with trumpets um, uh, as the new king of Israel. And this immediately sets in motion all of the events that, that take place over the coming chapters. And it's interesting because um, Jehu is the only king from the northern kingdom to be anointed with oil by a prophet. He is literally an anointed one. He is a small c Christ of the Old Testament. He's also the only one who is given the royal treatment with these garments that are placed under his feet. We won't see this again, actually, until Palm Sunday, when the disciples and followers of Jesus give Jesus uh, the same royal treatment. And, And this leads us to think that Part of what we are meant to see here is a different side of the coming Messiah. We're meant to see something um, about the coming Christ, large C, as it is typified, as it is illustrated, however imperfectly, uh, by, by this new king, uh, Jehu, from the Old Testament. We're also meant to see the power of God's word. In Isaiah 55, we read in verse 11, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord is saying. What we see here is soon as the word of God, it is thus says the Lord, you are going to be the next king. Thus says the Lord, you are going to wipe out King Ahab. And and we'll come to the reasoning a little later. But what we see here is just the power of God's word. We know that God's word uh, already, it's living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And the reason for this, that the New Testament helps us understand more clearly, is that the word of God is not merely a bare word. It's not just simply a message, but it's a message in which the spirit of the living God inhabits. 
It's a message, it's a word that is first inspired by the Spirit of God, and then it is empowered by the Spirit of God. And in this particular case, all these events are set in motion through the proclamation of God's Word, such that in this case, it's not just simply that, you know, you you see the divine sovereignty of the Word, but you see the Word of God um, directing this particular part and piece of history. Well, as the Word of God goes forth, the Word brings life where there was no life. The Word, um, it nourishes souls. The Word comforts us. It shows us that whatever we may be worried about, in the end, it's going to be okay. That's what the Word of God tells us. By word and the Holy Spirit, God will bring us through the wilderness of this world to the promised land of Canaan, to the Jerusalem which is above. For God's word has declared it to be so. God's word has declared that he will save us to the uppermost. He will bring us to that Beulah land where every tear will be wiped away. And why will every tear be wiped away? Because in the end, everything is going to be all right. In the end, everything is going to be made right. In the end, there will be perfect justice. In the end, mercy and grace will reign, and all the world will be restored. And so we see the power of God's word. Well, the rest of the chapter and the next chapter chronicles how God's vengeance falls on the house of Ahab. And I really should say um, it begins to fall on the house of Ahab in chapter 9 because it really isn't until the next chapter that the entire household is cut off. But here we see that God's vengeance begins first with the deaths of Ahab's second son, that is King Joram. The king of the south is going to get caught up in this judgment But the king of the south, whose name is Ahaziah, is also the grandson of Ahab and Jezebel. And then the queen mother, who is still alive, and we will come to that, um, the queen mother herself will be destroyed um, uh, uh, by King Jehu. So Jehu is driving his chariot towards the city of Jezreel because that's where the king is recuperating from an earlier injury inflicted by the Syrians. And while still a long way off, and you can imagine, you know, these watchmen on the walls, yeah, you got to feel for them because probably most of the, their time is like, oh, no, you know, nothing to see here. It's got to be the boringest job ever. And here he finally sees this little wisp, this little cloud of dust way deep in the horizon. And you can imagine, oh, I've got something. And he sounds the alarm. I mean, this watchman is on it. It's while Joram is still a long way off that he is seen, far enough away that you can send out two messengers by chariot to figure out, you know, who's coming and why. The king sends a servant out to meet Jehu with this simple question, is it peace? Or literally, is it shalom? Okay, is it shalom? And, and that word shalom, can, it, it, there's a lot of elasticity to that word. It could simply be meaning, you know, not, you know, are you coming to do harm or for peace? It could just simply mean, is all well? Is, are you bringing us a message about the war that's taking place on the eastern side of the Jordan River 
Jezreel is on the western side. Um, the Israelites are currently fighting against Syria on the eastern side. It could just be the king wants to know, is all well? You know, before the, 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 this small army arrives, um, you know, what, what's the news? Let's get it to the king as quickly as possible. But um, uh, Jehu takes it seriously. Um, he says, what do you have to do with peace? What do you have to do with shalom? Um, meaning, how can there be peace when the son of Ahab is on the throne and Baalism is still being practiced with all of its sorcery and, and falsehood? So after being given an ultimatum, the charioteer who came out, the messenger who came out to meet uh, Jehu, well, he falls in line. <coughs> Thank you. He falls in line. A second messenger goes out. He too falls in line. And because now uh, the chariot is close enough to see how it's being driven, apparently Jehu was kind of a crazy man when it came to driving his chariot because he could tell, oh, that's Jehu. You can tell just by the way this chariot is coming in. Um, and at this point, Ahab, um, I'm sorry, Joram, King Joram and King Ahaziah, they don't realize that God has called uh, Jehu to bring vengeance, to, to avenge the deaths of, of all of God's people who have been killed by the household of Ahab. And so they go out, and, you know, what's the news? They, they don't, again, they don't realize what is about to happen. And so at this point then, um, Joram, King Joram recognizes that a coup is in, proce- is in uh, process, and he tries to flee, but he is shot with an arrow, just like his father Ahab. Uh, he's shot in, in the back with an arrow, he dies, um, and then Ahaziah, the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, is also uh, wounded, and he dies uh, a ways off in Megiddo. And then finally, the third person in our chapter, which I didn't read, Now I'll come to this now, um, Queen Jezebel receives her comeuppance. And so we pick up the story in verse 30, and there we see this. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel, the queen mother, heard of it. And she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out of the window. It sounds like, you know, she wants to make sure she looks good, you know, for the coming of the king. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? Well, now this is an allusion back to a previous uh, general who murdered the king. But in his case, Zimri only reigns for one week before he himself is assassinated. So the queen knows that Jehu uh, is uh, uh, about um, taking the throne. And he lifted up his face to the window. That's Jehu. And he said, who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked out at him. He said, throw her down. So they threw her down. And some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses. And they trampled on her. Then they went in and ate and drank, and he said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. But when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. And when they came back and told him, he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke to his servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. 
And the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, this is Jezebel. The demise of the queen mother is just as way back during the life of Elijah, it was just as he had prophesied would take place as a judgment against the house of Ahab. And if you've been reading straight through First and Second Kings, you would be freshly aware still of how evil this woman is. I mean, of all the people in the Bible, she is one of the most notorious individuals in either Old or New Testament. She is a kind of Old Testament antichrist because she's instituted the militant worship of Baal. She sought to wipe out the true prophets of God. She arranged the murder of Naboth and his sons in order to steal their ancestral property for the king. And she vowed to have the prophet Elijah killed. And so if you've been paying attention, the immediate response after Jehu has her thrown out this window is, Yay, finally, justice is done, okay? Justice is done. That would be uh, probably the appropriate response at this point. And when we take the further destruction of the house of Ahab into account, we can say, when we look at God's vengeance, we learn something about it, that it is thorough, that it is deadly, Well, let me just highlight four additional truths from this text. First, we see in the story, uh, just very briefly, that the political realm is accountable to God, okay? The political realm is accountable to God. It's very important. We we sometimes get into a place where we think, you know, um, the king is uh, is God, you know, there's no law above the king. Uh, And in fact, that is not the case. Whether you are a president, whether a prime minister, whether some military dictatorship, none of them are a law unto themselves. There's only one person to whom all authority under heaven and earth has been given, and that is King Jesus. That is not to say that government or governing leaders are unimportant. They indeed have a critical role to play for the well-being of any society, But what this does show us is at the end of the day, every governing leader needs to understand they will someday be held to account. They will be held to account by the one to whom every knee will one day bow. Okay, Every knee will one day bow. Every political leader will be held accountable. Secondly, God has special regard he will vindicate his persecuted people, okay? He has special regard for the suffering and for the martyrdom of the saints, of his people. This is explicit in the text. In verse 7, um, when uh, uh, the prophet is telling Jehu why he is to um, uh, destroy the house of Ahab, he says this, you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master. Why? so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. 
Just as the blood of the first martyr Abel cries to the Lord from the ground, so too God hears and he sees the demise of every one of the persecuted and martyred saints of God. Do not forget the ancient promise given to Father Abraham. Those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. Jezebel attacked the prophets of God with abandon, and God heard the pleas of every prayer from a suffering soul. He saw their wounds. He saw the spilling of blood of each and every one of his servants. Near the top of God's priorities is his jealous love for his people. It's his jealous love for his saints. In Revelation chapter 6, I'm going to just turn to Revelation 6 for a moment. And this is a vision that's given to the Apostle John while he is uh, exiled to this island of Patmos. And there we read this. When he, the Lord, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, he kind of has this vision of the temple, of this altar, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and they were told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Such an interesting, uh, uh, an interesting vision that the Apostle John has given. He sees the, the souls of the saints at the base of the altar. They're crying out, Lord, how long before you will bring justice? How long before you avenge uh, the injustices of what has taken place? And what's interesting and noteworthy, instructive, is that God says it's not going to be immediate, in fact. In fact, there's going to be a delay. And the reason being is that the full number of these martyrs has not, um, uh, has not arrived, that there's still more that will need to suffer, that will need to be persecuted, and that ultimately, for, for uh, some, maybe many, will need to be martyred, who will die as a witness of Jesus Christ and of the gospel of Christ. Now, the world sees this as a defeat. But part of what Revelation tells us is that these are the ones clothed with white robes. Those white robes are a symbol of triumph, actually. They're a symbol that these are overcomers. It's a symbol that they themselves will, in fact, triumph. And part of what we see both in 2 Kings 9 is there was a delay with the, the prophecy that came through Elijah to King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Um, you would think, as soon as they're murdering the prophets, as soon as they murder Naboth and his sons to take his, his ancestral property, um, that ju- God's had it. He's had enough. He's going to bring the judgment. But such is not the case. It waits another generation, in part, perhaps, for the sins to ripen. So that when the vengeance comes... They really know, yeah, we had this coming. There's no doubt 
that this was. See, God's vengeance is not like ours, where very often when we want revenge as humans, uh, we are excessive. We, um, uh, we, we go way beyond what justice would mandate. But God's vengeance is perfectly just. A person will receive no more and no less than what they justly deserve. And perhaps part of the reason why God delays these judgments, and you think about the 20th century, the 20th century, more Christians died as martyrs than any other century previously. Why does he delay in judgment? Well, because he's allowing the sins of the Amorites, a reference to a message God gave to Abraham, to ripen to their full maturity. And also, God does not delight in the death of the wicked. But all of this is nevertheless under God's sovereign hand. And this leads us to a third point, that God's vengeance is a promised vengeance. God's vengeance um, is told beforehand because it serves both as a warning and as a promise. It's a warning and as a promise. It's a warning so that the house of Ahab could repent. There is time, but it's also a promise to know that God is sovereign over it all. It's not arbitrary, that, that, that this is nevertheless still under God's hands. And similarly, similarly, we see in Revelation this vision of God's vengeance yet to come. Revelation 19.1. After this, John says, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Why? For his judgments are true and just. Whatever God's vengeance comes, it is true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute. This is the symbol for the world system and for false religion. Just, and, and, and it's taking, actually, the image of Jezebel, who is part of both the world system and false religion. She's sort of lying in the background of this image. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. This is a judgment against Babylon, again, the world system that has spilled the blood of the martyrs. And God is saying that judgment is coming and that no one outside of faith in Jesus will escape. And so the message as a warning and as a a grace is, are you ready? Are you ready for the coming judgment of, of the Lord? And this leads us to the last point. We need to be ready for this coming worldwide cleansing of the planet the coming vengeance of God, not on us, uh, not on our world, because it's directly responsible for martyrs, but on the world uh, for its rebellion against its true king, its rebellion against, uh, against the Lord and against Christ. Now, this is um, a vengeance that will come uh, on, on the world for acting unjustly in God's sight, but it is also good news. It is, in fact, great news because the Lord, with this warning, provides a way of escape, okay? He provides a way of escape. This is Romans. I'm just turning into Romans chapter uh, 3, verse 23 and following. 
And here we read, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And they are justified by his grace as a gift. To be justified means to, be for, to have your sins forgiven. To be justified means... Um, so sometimes the word justification is a theological term, and, and you can remember it this way. Justification means just as if I had never what? Sinned. Okay, justification, just as if I had never sinned. Christ has come in order to justify us. They are justified by Christ's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that is, a satisfaction, a just satisfaction for the the wrath of God. God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And then verse 26, this was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that God might be both just, that is every crime is paid for, and yet the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. There is our way of escape, faith in Jesus Christ. Now, there's a ditch on either side of what this means to have faith in Jesus Christ. On the one hand are those who simply say, well, if I just mouth the words, Jesus, I believe you're my Lord and Savior, you, know, you just kind of rotely say a, a simple prayer. You think that that's faith. Well, that's not faith. It's not just simply mouthing the words. It's not simply going through the motions. Faith in Christ is looking to Jesus. Faith in Christ is believing that what he says and what the scriptures say are true, especially when it concerns Jesus. And faith in Christ does not mean that there are no doubts. There may actually be doubts. You just have enough faith to look to Jesus and say, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. And nor does faith mean that you have to understand it all. (laughs) You're not going to understand it all uh, this side of heaven. Our faith is going to be a very uneducated faith, you know, in differing degrees from the time we begin. But to those who place faith in Jesus, God says, I will count his death as payment for your sins, and I will exchange I will clothe you in his righteousness so that you can stand before me without shame. And so I'll close here. This is Romans 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, the word of God says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Well, let's pray. Lord, we learn more about your character, about your holiness, about your sense, your perfect sense of justice, of your jealous love for your children, for the saints for the vengeance that is still one day to come upon this planet in which the planet will be cleansed from all unrighteousness, from all injustice, from all immorality. 
And we thank you, Lord, that you've given us a place to stand, a place that's safe, a place that will um, bring us safely through the coming judgment, and that is Jesus Christ and through faith in him. And so we pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here who still needs to place their trust in you, speak to them, Lord. Open their eyes to your beauty and to your majesty. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.